0: What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Now look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation.
1: From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Adam Kempinar. And I'm Josh Larson. Every magic trick consists of three parts, or acts. The first part is called the pledge. The magician shows you something ordinary. Uh, A deck of cards, a bird, or a man. That was Michael Caine, right? We're done with the trip. (laughs) That was Michael Kane with some of the opening narration from Christopher Nolan's The Prestige. We revisit the director's fifth feature as part of our Nolan oeuvre this week.
0: In addition to that, we're going to recommend two new films that recently came to VOD, The Vast of Night and The Painter and The Thief. That and more. Are you watching closely?
1: Ahead on Film Spotting. Welcome to Film Spotting. Josh, in an alternate timeline, we'd be spending this post-Memorial Day weekend show singing the praises, most likely, of Fast and Furious 9. Oh, yeah. I'm, sh- I'm sure we'd both be huge fans. I haven't been keeping up with what would
0: have been released because it mostly depresses me. So this is a mm-hmm. surprise to me. F9, Adam, as the, as the real fans ah. would call it, don't let Debbie hear That that
1: was supposed to come out, because she'd probably (laughs) force me into a Fast and Furious marathon at home in memory of it. Instead, of course, we are talking about films new to VOD. We're going to do a little golden brick spotting in this episode. Indeed. There are two new films that meet the criteria
0: for our Golden Brick Award. That's our overlooked or underseen film of the year honor that we give to a mostly new or at least new to us filmmaker. We've both seen the new documentary, The Painter and the Thief, and I'm also going to recommend The Vast of Night.
1: That's a low-budget sci-fi thriller that comes to Amazon Prime this weekend. Of course, we're also pinning all our hopes of a summer movie season on the theoretically opening Tenet, the latest from Christopher Nolan. Somehow the word theoretically there just seems so appropriate when talking about Christopher Nolan. Anyway, that is still scheduled, as of this recording anyway, to come to theaters on July 17th, 717, chosen for being a palindrome like the title of the film, Josh. I'm sure that you knew that, and we can trust that Christopher Nolan is going to try to be oh so clever, right? Yes, not a surprise. Our own Nolan oeuvre review, which has us revisiting all of Nolan's films, is currently scheduled to wrap up in time for that July 17 release. Otherwise, all of this preparation is going to be for not Josh. We need Tenet to get to the big screen. In the meantime, we're going to get to his 2006 film, The Prestige. I'll perform this feat
0: in a manner never before seen by yourselves or any other audience anywhere in the world.
1: The audience loved it. This trick is top notch. Need to celebrate.
0: <laughs> a real magician tries to
1: invent something new. God! It's something that other magicians will scratch their heads over. I suppose you have such a trick. Actually, I do. It's the one they're gonna remember me for. What happened? It was the greatest magic trick I've ever seen. need to know how he does it. He has no trick. It's real. Every great magic trick consists of three acts. The first act is called the pledge. Every great Christopher Nolan movie consists of three parts or acts. The first part is called the pledge. The filmmaker shows you something ordinary with his fifth feature set in late 19th century London. It's two rival magicians. Hugh Jackman's sophisticated showman, Robert Angier, and Christian Bale's committed professional, Alfred Borden. The filmmaker shows you these characters. Perhaps he asks you to watch them to see if they are indeed real, unaltered, normal. But of course, they probably aren't. The second is called The Turn. The filmmaker takes these characters and makes them part of something extraordinary. Our period piece becomes gothic science fiction, a meditation on the moral limits of science and pursuit of knowledge, the consequences of obsession. Now you're looking for the secret, but you won't find it because, of course, you're not really looking. You don't really want to know. You want to be fooled, but you wouldn't clap yet because one of our magicians finally winning isn't enough. Our minds have to be blown. That's why every magic trick has a third act, the hardest part, the part we call the prestige. Fairly early in the film, Borden's wife, Sarah, played by Rebecca Hall, reveals he's going to be a father. He shows her the trick that's going to put food on their table, a bullet catch, which he performs for her to prove it's safe. Like any of us observing a great trick, she wants to know the secret, and insists she can't comfortably allow him to do it unless she understands the mechanics of it. He relents. She replies, disappointedly, once you know, it's so obvious. Josh, any rewatch of The Prestige requires that you know the twist. And equipped with that knowledge, it does all seem, well, pretty obvious. Like Sarah, did that leave you disappointed or even more impressed with Nolan's sleight of hand? I am really glad you asked this question because
0: it helped me clarify a little bit it helped me locate one of the reasons why and i'll stay at the say at the front here this is still top tier nolan for me really love this film i think it's incredibly strong but your question helped me locate one of the reasons why i might have liked it a little bit less this time around and it's not so simple as knowing the twists or knowing the surprises because confession I don't think I watched The Prestige since 2006, and I had mostly forgotten how everything unfolded. Now, yeah. the hints and clues, I pieced it together in advance in a way that I did not in 06, um, mm-hmm. but it's different from not knowing anything. So I was still pretty much in the dark as this movie began. So it's not just that I knew the answers, it's, and I'm not sure it disappoints even in terms of its reveals, but... In comparison to something like, as before we started recording, you had mentioned The Sixth Sense. So, comparison to something like that, which we did revisit just last year, um, and is another case where it it hugely depends on its reveals, its twists, its turns, its surprises. Um, I do think in comparison to something like that, The Prestige is a little bit less rewarding the second time. And the basic reason for me is that my Sixth Sense rewatch had more aesthetic clues to soak up that were related to the mystery. So things like the color red, remember we talked about mm-hmm. that, or even the cold breath that you were curious about the first time and it was a visual element that late, you realize, oh, that represents the dead. Uh, and you can look for that and feel it on the screen. So those were aesthetic clues to soak up, whereas here in The Prestige, they're more narrative clues or, or just... Narrative reveals to remember. So not so much to experience, but as I was watching the procedure, it would be like when they revealed it, oh yeah, that's what Mm -hmm. this means. And as an example of this, I would say the journal entries, a lot of this unfolds as um, competing journal entries, and it's revealed that the writer knows the reader will read it one day, right? Twice. in both cases. In both cases, we get that. And that's kind of a narrative plot reveal. Or even Bale's explanation at the very end and here, fair warning to listeners, if you have not seen The Prestige, we are going to get into spoilers. Um, just seems natural for this overview and for this type of film in particular, so maybe um, watch the film and come back to this conversation. But another example of this I would give is Bale's explanation at the very end that he's a twin, when he explains this all to Jackman, right? Um, that's kind of, it's a cool twist, and if you hadn't pieced it together before, you um, it's it's exciting to understand, but it's also something of a narrative explanation rather than an aesthetic surprise or or something that's a little more textured. So I'll, I'd say it's still rewarding to watch those clues be cleverly set in place. One example to go back to Rebecca Hall's character, I really loved um, how she would repeatedly say to Bale's character, "Today you mean it." Yeah, about, you mean it or about about I don't love this you. Time. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, because. The first time I watched that, that was just kind of like a hmm, a curiosity, and right. the second time it holds much more power. Yeah. Um, so, so I do appreciate it still, but it's not quite as formally interesting as the Sixth Sense. So, hmm. so I think that's a distinction between the two, and maybe why the revisit for Sixth Sense was was a little bit more enjoyable, even though again, really love this film.
1: Yeah, we'll definitely talk a little bit more about Rebecca Hall, and I think I had the slightly opposite experience. To you, Josh, ironically, maybe I was more disappointed the first time I saw the film, as we got to the reveal and all of that new information. As I got the exhilarating thrill of that twist, I looked back at my notes from my original review and I was positive here on the show, but I wasn't gushing. And I specifically said, at least in my notes, that in the end, I guess I'm stealing from myself, just like these magicians in the movie, Josh. I felt a little bit like Sarah. Once the trick was revealed to me, I actually just felt kind of stupid. Mm-hmm. I wasn't I wasn't amazed at the artistry. I was just kind of Mad at myself for not figuring it out. But I do think if I'm being honest, there was a complicating factor there. And that was, I probably was a little bit mad at myself and feeling like an idiot because I'm pretty sure I did not fully figure it out. (laughs) Even as Nolan laid it all out, the characters gave it to me. I still was swimming a little bit my head was swimming
0: you it over when you got out of the I, theater I did. yeah i was in the yeah, same place exactly. but let me let me ask you this adam cuz i i think this is interesting you described in your setup how we you know audiences riffing on the film they want to be fooled and I feel like people can watch movies like this two different ways. I'm curious which type of person you'd describe yourself as. The person who does want to be fooled or the person who loves to figure it out along the
1: way? Because I'm no. more of the want to be fooled person. Yeah, um, me too. Okay. All right. So that's... Completely. Yeah, and that's yeah. why I fall for a movie like this, even when I'm watching it for a second time, the first time since 06, but I'm seeing it again and I fundamentally know what the trick is. Mm-hmm. I still am willing to basically forget that and play along. And So if you do see it as a trick, if you see it as at the end, okay, Nolan pulled one over on us and I should have caught on to Borden's secret, then I can understand some dissatisfaction. But I think the benefit for me of seeing it again and knowing where it was going is that I could focus on hopefully what the movie is really about, (laughs) what the ramifications of the twist are and the ideas it raises. Mm-hmm. To use a line from the movie, it's what I think Bale says at one point, the secret impresses no one. The trick you use it for is everything, which, as we'll probably also get into, that could just as easily be Nolan talking about the trick of filmmaking, mm-hmm. right? That you can, you can fool people or wow people with certain gimmicks, maybe even like a reverse chronology in a film like Memento, but it's the trick you use it for that is really key. And in fact, Josh, what occurred to me this time is that Borden's Secret his grand sacrifice, this notion that he's really been living his whole life. I was going to say it's a double life, but it's actually a half-life. Yeah. you know, It's a part of him, and he never actually gets to fully explore the other part of him because he's divided up everything, his family and his art, even as a magician. But that sacrifice, even though it does feel like it's the final reveal of the film, you discover it's actually kind of the misdirection. And I think the real secret to wrestle with and again, we're in full spoiler territory here, is Angier's sacrifice. Mm. <laughs> not just how complicated and involved and, and difficult this scheme is, which obviously took so much time and planning to undo Borden, but that in finally doing what Borden always accused him of not doing, finally committing to his craft, finally getting his hands dirty, he doesn't just compromise his morals. He doesn't just compromise the basic laws of human morality. Yeah. He destroys all notions of human morality. It's actually if you sit back and think about it, fully comprehend it, it's actually astonishing to put yourself in Angier's shoes and consider the literal act of self destruction he makes the decision to go through with yeah. it. And I I didn't recognize that and I didn't reckon with it the first time I saw this movie. I think I was too caught up in some of the other reveals. I was too caught up in Borden's Secret and in the one-upmanship. I think he got me. Nolan got me with his sleight of hand a little bit, maybe to the movie's own detriment because I didn't fully think about the ideas at its core. And since we are in spoiler territory, in case it's not clear to someone, the implication for me of the end of the film, what we learn about Angier is is that Angier that we're seeing get shot by Borden? Is not the Angier we open the movie with? No, that's, that's my understanding. That's a clone. Yeah, that's a clone of Angier, and it might be at least the hundredth, maybe more. Yeah, clone. Like he, he has decided that for this act and we do see the scene in a flashback where he does have to kill that clone for the first time. And he Correct. doesn't really have much of a decision to make. Right. But he clearly then does make the decision after that. Well, once I've gone past that line, why not just keep crossing it? And every night is this act of self annihilation for his art. So following through on that theme, it, it is, that's, what's truly mind blowing for me when I think about it. And to go back to the sixth sense, as you brought that up, I think too, maybe you're right. Maybe some of the craft elements aren't there or some of the the visual aesthetics to really cue you in or to be a little bit more rewarding. But I did appreciate that. I think he did make it fairly obvious. Like we know what Angier is doing from the moment he gets the box and the moment he embarks on well, we this should, final tour. We, we should, should know. know from, honestly, we should know from the cat and the top hats. That's exactly you know that, what I mean, right? Yeah. yeah, you're right. At least from that point. But once he decides to take the box and we know what it does because we saw the top hats and the cat, then we know that he's made a decision to do this every night. But, we, and but is, I didn't know in okay 06. This goes back to you feeling no, fooled in I 06. I didn't put that together, even though no, you're right, we should have. Yeah, I didn't either. And so now you see it and you realize that that's laid out for you with still 20 or 30 minutes right. left in the movie. That That the Fallon character is... So hidden by the camera and edited around so we don't, as viewers, study him too closely. Because partly, too, if we did, we'd probably catch on that he's really Christian Bale. How about Cutter, Michael Caine, telling us early on in the film, I know how he does it. He just tells Angier it's a double. That is what it is. He knows it's a double. And I think that like Angier, we as viewers, we want to be fooled and we want to be like Malcolm Crow in the sixth sense. We see what we want to see. We embrace the lie. I think our reasons are slightly different as viewers. I think that might be just how we're wired as audiences to give the benefit of the doubt to the narrative and want to believe it is relatively straightforward and and linear in a way. But for Angier, man, I already mentioned Memento. He's just like Leonard. The lie is what gives his life meaning. It's what gives him purpose. That, that line he has, I'm disciplined. I'm talking about Leonard here in Memento. I'm disciplined and organized. I use habit and routine to make my life possible. I mean, that, that's Angier, certainly, but also it speaks for Borden. So I guess, in short, what I'm saying is, I thought that one of the great tricks of the Sixth Sense, we talked about this a lot as part of our 9 from 99 last year, was M. Night Shyamalan's putting it all out there for you, And he's putting you in the same position as his main character. All the evidence is there. And we choose to overlook it just like he does. We want to believe what we're being given, what's being put in front of us. And here, I think we're actually in a similar position to Angier. Well, the full reality of his monstrousness
0: is something that I think maybe it's denial. Maybe it's a a form of denial we have where we we don't want anyone, even someone who's you know sort of a, not a hero, but a protagonist for sure in this movie, and someone who's charming to a certain degree as played by Hugh Jackman, we don't want to admit he would do something like this. So it takes getting out of the theater and recognizing that he has been... If not, I mean, committing murder slash suicide on a nightly basis, and I did have like kind of a nerdy question about that this time around. So, my understanding, based on what we see that first time when he does shoot the clone, is that whoever steps into the box on stage, yeah, is the person who will die that night. But I do. That's my understanding. Yes. But there is a line of dialogue he says how about how it took sacrifice and it took to, yes, it was to dangerous courage. because he never knew if he'd be the
1: man in the box, which I am still trying to unpack. I'll I, be honest with you. I feel like the full
0: implication, and maybe a listener will will be able to you know explain this who's paid closer attention. But I feel like that's a conflict. Um, and my understanding was, and it, to me, it strikes me as more powerful if the showman, the stage guy, getting all the applause it goes back to him being underneath and not hearing the mm-hmm. applause knew right. each night to keep this ruse going, this long con to get bored in required nightly suicide. And that is, you know, an equally monstrous, but kind of a yes. different, differently monstrous conundrum. Um, so I I don't know if you, it sounds like you had the same reading I did on that. at least. Yeah,
1: I definitely did. And to go back to your point, too, about what we as viewers want to accept or don't want to accept. The Tesla line played by David Bowie here, where he says, you're familiar with the phrase, man's reach exceeds his grasp. And he says, it's a lie. Man's grasp exceeds his nerve that's surely what we see play out over the course of the movie and ultimately Angier realizes that he has the nerve yeah. and he steals himself to do this every night but i think we as viewers almost are are that man we just don't have the nerve to do what Angier's capable of and we don't even want to believe that someone like him or anyone is capable of that
0: yeah yeah so let me back up and and state you know kind of where i was at with the film in 2006 and why for me to say that this was a little bit less of an experience is not a slight on the film at all because Uh, I think at the time, again, coming after Batman Begins... I would have claimed this was Nolan's best film in 06. And I think that was partly because for me, it was a return to Memento form. I had loved Memento, Mm -hmm. was thrilled by Batman Begins, again, as sort of a a kid who grew up on superheroes. um, And this was a, a new way to approach them, I thought. But both Batman Begins and Insomnia, comparatively to Memento, were pretty straightforward. And I was so excited about this new filmmaker who made Memento that when I got this, and it seemed much more in the vein of Memento, but maybe a little more. I don't know if "polished" is the right word, but it's in a it's a bigger scale, bigger production. Um, it just it knocked me out, and I I mm-hmm. loved it. Um, now, even if I don't say it's probably, maybe not Nolan's best film. Um, I do think it might be his most Nolan-esque, and that's because Mm -hmm. it's got the narrative layers and the convoluted timeline we think of. These themes you and I have already discussed, obsession, mainly in the lengths, the places obsession will take men. We have more traumatized protagonists, both of them doubly traumatized, you know, triply if you include the Borden twins. Mm -hmm. Um, And then adding on top of this these bold visuals that we've come to uh, ascribe or expect from Nolan, here maybe it there aren't a ton of them, but the ones that we get, and I'm going to go back to the top hats, those top hats in the, in the field or the light bulbs glowing in the snowy mm-hmm. field um, are just, when you say the prestige, instantly I see the top hats. Um, and so I think for me, even thinking about the films that are to come in our overview, but obviously you and I have both seen, The Prestige maybe remains the most Nolan-esque film in his filmography.
1: Yeah, and I think we'll obviously have a clearer answer to that as we do get through these movies. But I would say, at least right now, if we didn't know Inception was coming, for example, then... We would have to say, well, this feels like the culmination of his career. You know, as we're now back to going in order, it feels like every film we've seen has been building to this one. And we are out of order a little bit because we talked about all three of the Batman films together. But it was funny for me even watching the way Borden and Angier keep trying to essentially settle the score with each other until – it gets so bad that we're in Mary Shelley's Frankenstein territory, mm-hmm. right? As we yeah. touched on with all these, these compromises. And all I could hear in my head is Commissioner Gordon talking about the Joker hmm. or Alfred talking about the Joker and the idea of escalation. Right, right. like from the dark night, it's just a constant state of escalation. Once you realize that something is possible, it really is in the same terrain. This idea that once there was some kind of harmony that was established in Gotham, well, then something had to come along and break that all up and turn it into chaos. And we had to have an agent of chaos who is someone who has the nerve to do all the unthinkable things that the Joker does. So that was definitely in my mind watching it. And I'm thinking about Bruce Wayne, I'm thinking about Leonard. I'm thinking about Will Dormer, guys all, again, driven by vengeance, as both of these guys are, right? And by guilt. And they're actual, they are performers, right? They're not just Bruce Wayne putting on the cowl to go out and fight crime. They're performers on a stage, and they've created this whole act and this whole world around them that allows them to act on their pain, basically to make sense of their pain, which seems so fundamentally true to Christopher Nolan. And- I'm going to take this back to a conversation we had that some of our listeners heard. Our family members on Patreon this past weekend, we recorded a conversation with our producer, Sam, about The Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou, a film I was hoping I would love after years of thinking it was Anderson's worst. And as you know, I've talked about Inception on the show before and that analogy of Cobb, the dream maker, and the world creator as filmmaker, right? And then you guys, just the same day I saw... The Prestige. I watched it the night after we taped that conversation, and I've got ringing in my head you and Sam putting forth this position that The Life Aquatic seems like such a personal Wes Anderson film, maybe his most personal Wes Anderson film, as it's about a movie maker. And you've got this director and Murray's character having to deal with the personal cost of his art and the responsibility that he accepts or doesn't accept for his crew, just the weight of all that, and trying to reconcile what kind of man you are with what kind of artist you are. Because it seems that it may be impossible to be both a good man and a great artist. And whether, I don't know if you guys use the term an apology or whether it's an actual reconciliation, that Anderson over the course of that film does come to terms with that idea. That's all in my head as I'm watching this film and I'm thinking, well then, what do we make of the prestige? What do we make of what Christopher Nolan might be doing from a personal standpoint with this material? Is it, is it an actual apology where he's saying this is it. This is the life of the artist. And I'm committed to it, just like Borden and and Angier are. Is it a validation? This is a, a pretty cynical view in terms of understanding what Nolan might be like as a man. It's not very charitable, but he's saying, yeah, you know what? These great feats are really what it's all about. And if there are sacrifices you make along the way, personal costs, that's all worth it. Or do you do what we probably have to do because it's fruitless to try to imagine who christopher nolan is as a person we we take it out of that realm of trying to understand his psychology and we just look at it as an exploration of these ideas right i mean at the end we get that line where he says the audience knows the truth and Jier says the audience knows the truth the world is simple it's miserable solid all the way through but if you could fool them even for a second then you can make them wonder and that sure seems compatible With a filmmaker, with the idea of a filmmaker like Nolan making all these films we're talking about that are so bleak, that have in a lot of ways a very miserable, pessimistic worldview. But as a filmmaker, he does try to make us wonder. And that might be the only real grace we ever get is through art. Through the type of art that he is striving for.
0: Well, so that's bringing us to one of the criticisms, or at least descriptions, of Nolan as a a cold filmmaker. And um, I don't know if I've ever been tempted to read one of his films as some sort of personal statement or even an expression of a personal experience. Because I just haven't gotten that vibe from any of them. I think you're probably right to point to Inception as the one that most closely could be the analogy for filmmaking. And that's personal. It's it's professional personal, right? Um, but these other concerns that are more private personal or psychological personal, those elements are in his movies. But I do think it's something that... Um, is not one of the strengths of his movies. Let's put it that way. Maybe Memento is the one that registers where the emotions and the experiences are are so raw, I feel them. Um, The Prestige is another movie, again, for how much I like it, where I would say the emotions are somewhat mechanical or they almost feel required Mm -hmm. because Nolan, uh, as a filmmaker knows, especially when he's working at this scale you know, you're, you're a mass audience filmmaker at this point, and there are elements people are going to expect. And some of that might be romance. Um, some of that might be, uh, you know, um, family relationships. And I think we get to, you know, one thing that struck me with The Prestige is that the, the dead wife or the dead lover thing, it's a little more problematic in retrospect. Mm-hmm. Um, and by that, I mean, before this was something we got pretty much just in memento, right? If we had come to the prestige new in 06, but now we're watching it again in light of The Dark Knight Rises, where that happens, in light of Inception, where that happens, right? If I'm remembering Inception correctly. So this also brings us to the performances, I think, and back to Rebecca Hall, who I know you wanted to get back to. I think she is giving the best performance in the film yet she's mm. not quite able to carry all that emotional weight she can't herself no, as, good, it's unfair. as good as good as it is unfair that's the perfect word for it and so for me um and i am connecting this back to your point about this being a personal expression because that's what we're as people as humans in relationships that's where we're going to connect right we can't all connect with you know, not even magicians, but let's just say broader artists or people with creative aspirations or any sort of aspirations Mm -hmm. that we might become obsessed by. We could connect with that, but those are sort of professional, even though they're intricately connected with who we are as people, too. The relational stuff is where the movie still falls a little short, and I think a lot of his movies do. Um, The whole business between her and Scarlett Johansson, her character and Scarlett Johansson's character and Bale's two characters, just feels rushed to me. Um, Not convincingly handled. I think it feels all the more so with um, Hall's sudden suicide Mm -hmm. and... Uh, so I think that is something that is lacking here, and is maybe a different answer to what you're bringing up. But, but for me, that's where the personal element comes into play, and it just doesn't register as strongly as I wished it would.
1: Yeah, and I will say, I never thought of Nolan, I suppose, as a personal filmmaker in the way we typically think of filmmakers who kind of just open a vein and bleed well, on the like screen no for back, you, right? Yeah, <laughs> Let's, like No Boundaries. Right, True, yeah. but. That had never occurred to me until I saw The Prestige. I watched it in this context and Mm. saw that these meta elements that we have touched on throughout this entire series, they're so blatant here. That acknowledgement of the audience, including even the framing device of Michael Caine's voiceover, which is just acknowledging the role that the filmmaker is in and we as audience members. So it did really hit me this time. But Josh, I'm completely with you. There's a line in this movie that really stuck with me this time, and I don't think it's just because, for reasons I'll explain, I don't think it's just because I've heard this word cold also thrown out as a criticism of Nolan. And I don't know if that was a common criticism of him back at the time this film came out, too, or something that has grown since then. It also is a word that a lot of people have attached, of course, to Stanley Kubrick, who's someone we know that Nolan does revere on some level as a filmmaker, and a lot of comparisons are made To him, there's a line that Scarlett Johansson has in this movie. Talk about another character who gives a great performance that isn't really a fair fight. She has a line when she finally says goodbye to Borden. And she says, you could be in some other cafe saying the same thing about me right now. It's inhuman to be so cold. And that really felt to me with this swirling in my head, it felt like (laughs) Nolan put that line in as if, as if he had had someone in his life say that exact phrase to him. Yeah. A bit of self critique. Yeah. Self critique (laughs) that he puts, he puts in the film and I'll say about Johansson too. She's so good as an actress, even in 2006, and she has so much life brimming through her, mm. that I do believe her, even mm. though the movie completely marginalizes her. I believe every, every moment that she expresses anything that seems like an actual human emotion in this film. And so that's what I want to get to where the coldness does creep in for me, Josh, in this movie is that if Nolan really wanted to reconcile, I think, in a truly meaningful way, the man in the art, personal happiness versus professional success and ambition, If you want to make it more cliche, the head versus the heart, he gives us the elements and he even tries to make them very prominent. Yes. But it turns out they're just window dressing. Yes. They're, They're parts on the chessboard for him. Correct. And I am talking about Borden's daughter and I'm talking about Sarah. There should be, if you really do think about the end of this film and process everything, which is hard to do, as we've said, even on a second viewing, there should actually be a powerful, happy Aspect to the end. That's after Borden and Jir destroy themselves. One part of Borden, the twin lives and through the destruction of his brother. And in the reunion with his daughter, he finally gets to be his whole self. That's what Borden says to him from jail. He says, go live your life in full. Mm -hmm. This idea that now unencumbered by obsession, his or his brothers, he gets to finally go and live. And that moment at the end, when the daughter and the father, reunite that should stir something in me as a viewer just like it should stir something in me when i see sarah hang herself right when she dies i should really feel something and and i never do there is a truly mechanical aspect to it your word there josh is right and this is a film i've touched on already it feels the most like memento to me and some of that is the flashback structure where you also feel like you pop in sometimes on discussions from a character's past only so nolan can provide a story element that's necessary to pull off the grand trick, but there's nothing about those scenes that does actually have emotion underpinning it. And it does all feel too cold and too calculated. And I think that's a sacrifice Nolan makes that's unfortunate because the film would be stronger for it. Well, it's it's unnecessary, is what it
0: is. So so you're right. I had the same response. And what that's a reveal, you know, that that's kind of a, a tell in this movie of tricks that It's not really what the movie is interested in. It's not interested in the family or the daughter. It feels like, as you said, it needs to be. Now, let me be clear. I also don't think Nolan has to be interested in that. I am not saying Mm -hmm. that every great movie has to have a strong marital relationship (laughs) or a strong family dynamic. Um, Again, I get the sense that... um, As a filmmaker, perhaps he felt this was a necessary element in this story. As I don't think we've mentioned yet, this is adapted from a book. So maybe it was in the book that is by uh, Christopher Priest. Nolan wrote the screenplay with his brother Jonathan, and so they're just including it as part of the story because it was originally there. But let me, you know, not to get ahead of ourselves, and I'm curious to see if I have this reaction when I see Dunkirk again, but I think one of the things I love about Dunkirk in retrospect, Adam... He doesn't even try to include yeah. that stuff. And that's now, why I love Memento. And he doesn't, as well. He doesn't have to. He doesn't to. try there. Yeah, he doesn't no. have to in Dunkirk because obviously, you know, it's, it's men in battle the whole time. Um, so it wouldn't make sense to kind of foist that upon the film. Um, but yeah, and Memento has a little bit more of it as sort of, you know, again, that the dead wife syndrome, um, but not as much as here. And so uh, this isn't something, if it's not a strength of yours as a filmmaker, um, Maybe you don't have to try to include it. Although it's also admirable to see if you can pull it off, you know? Yeah. Um, so you well, have to say that. Well, he gives us just
1: enough to care about the characters, but really only to care about them when we realize that they're not characters. Yeah.
0: So I'm I'm going to have to, and I'm a big fan of Scarlett Johansson and have been for a long, long time. But I I do have to disagree. I I just don't think the movie serves her poorly, but... I don't find her convincing in her scenes either. And maybe it's especially that moment where she has to be an unconvincing actress with Borden, you know, and we're supposed to see that she's a bad actress and it's just too close to some of the mm. other scenes that we get. Uh, but I don't again, know if I had that reaction to it, Josh, just, it's just because... It's more on
1: her. I mean, it's more on the movie, I should say, than her, to be fair. Yeah. Um, yeah. But well, I think- there's just two different versions of that scene, even. Like, I don't really know in some ways what... I think what they, would be the bad acting versus the good acting? Well, know? and I think they use maybe that's
0: part of the problem. I think they use the same exact footage, and so that because they know they can. But I think we should get to the um, talk about Bale and Jackman as co-leads um, because I'm someone who has, and I haven't quite specified exactly what it is but a little bit of an aversion to Christian Bale I think he just he just tries so hard so obviously hard um but I think he's great here I think he's perfectly cast as this obsessive risk taker as the pure artist you know you get a sense like this is how Bale would talk about acting the way that uh, his character talks about magic um, and performing and so I'm with him all the way in this film Jackman mm-hmm. I think is great. When he's the showman on stage. Like that's probably yes. what got him the part, right? Yes. When the great yes. Denton is supposed to be um exactly this guy who would bring in the crowds. And he's just there's there's a big gap between that and say the scenes where he's reading those journals and is suddenly understands he's been had and he you yes. know blurts out the anger. I know. I, a very, you know that's gotta be one of the hardest sort of scenes to perform is you're all alone, no one to react <laughs> off, and yeah. you're responding to a piece of paper. So, you know, more power to him, but it's, there's a big gap between that and when he's on stage.
1: Ladies and gentlemen, much of what you've seen tonight may be termed as illusions or entertaining trifles.
0: Alas. I cannot claim this next feat
1: as illusion watch carefully you'll see no trickery no trickery is employed
0: merely a technique familiar to certain citizens of the orient and various holy men of the
1: himalayas so that's another part of this film josh that we saw exactly the same way i was really surprised because i can't recall ever having a negative reaction to hugh jackman and it's not as if i'm negative overall or think it's a terrible performance. But in comparison to Bale, it, it really doesn't hold up at all. And I think that, you know, Bale's giving a great film performance. He's playing someone who's a little bit impenetrable. And as an audience member, we're just we're staring at that camera and we're trying to understand what's in his head. And Jackman, I agree. I think he's expressive and too theatrical to a fault. I felt like the performance, I suppose, was a little bit too hammy. And that does work when he's the great Danton on stage. But off stage it doesn't. So I, too, was really struck by the disparity in those performances. And I think we're both acknowledging they're very different characters. But even in those moments where Angier is supposed to be just as dark and brooding... Yeah, that's and, what it is. ...and enigmatic as, as Borden, he's just not giving you that element, unfortunately, yeah. to play off of as a viewer. Now, it's funny. I was having a conversation over Slack with Sam and he liked the movie, but didn't love it. This is definitely mid or second or third tier Nolan for him. And he's doing the same thing when there's a movie like this that he's just not, buying. He's nitpicking it apart, right? So all weekend, we're going back and forth on different things. And most of it, I'm arguing with him on or trying to explain that it's all accounted for, that it does make sense. It's in the movie. And we're talking about Jackman. And I say to him, I can't believe you haven't pointed out the biggest actual flaw with this movie, which is the performance that he gives as Root, the actor. (laughs) like but, like how all of a sudden it's just a Saturday night live character who shows up in oh, but 1890s London. It brings some levity that's so no, needed. No, I know. And Sam of course, yeah, Sam of course, just like you Josh writes back and goes, "Of course I loved it." <laughs> yes. <laughs> it was like, I mean, we're we really
0: due for a little bit
1: of lightness and then he
0: shows up. And I thought I thought Those it was teeth, great, man. The teeth. Yeah. Those teeth. Well, and th- I don't know. You know, we and one more performance we should note is Bowie. I mean, how good is oh, Bowie yeah. in a couple of scenes? And precisely because you would never know it was David Bowie. Nothing is impossible, Mr. Angier. What you want is simply expensive. If I were to build for you this machine, you would be presenting it merely as illusion.
1: Well, if people actually believe the things I did on stage, they wouldn't clap that scream. I mean, think of sawing a woman in half.
0: Mr. Angie, have you considered the cost of such a machine? Price is not an object. Perhaps not, but have you considered the cost? I, I yeah. mean, obviously there are a few features that maybe would give it away if if you didn't know going into it. But really, it's the it's the sort of subdued presence and serene and kind of resigned to the state of the world, but but pursuing his obsessions anyway, Mm -hmm. um, that he brings a full character in just a couple of scenes. Mm -hmm. So I want to just note on, hit a few notes of sort of technical things we've been tracing throughout our overview, like cinematography, music, editing, because it's interesting to see Nolan's collaborators and who he's working with here. Uh, The cinematography by Wally Pfister, uh, Memento, Insomnia, did the Batman films. Um, Those foggy Colorado scenes, I've already mentioned them, I think are the visual high point for me. Just gorgeous. Uh, And really, how about that lamp coming on at the train station when Angier Mm -hmm. arrives and just tells you something magical and also scientific is happening here, right? Uh, Mm -hmm. The music is interesting because it is... David Julian, so not Hans Zimmer, who's always associated with Nolan, but Julian did Following. He did the music for Following. He did the music for Memento and the music for Insomnia. It has similar ominous tones, I think, to Zimmer's work, but is probably a bit more restrained in its employment of them. And then one more thing I wanted to throw out there is just the editing by Lee Smith, who joins Nolan on Batman Begins, so the previous film, and then sticks with him since... There's a really nice sequence here when Michael Caine is training Jackman with the disappearing dove trick. And mm-hmm. the way they show us is we go back and forth to Jackman learning it from Caine and then demonstrating it himself later to a theater owner trying to book the theater. That was a really skillful way of taking us as viewers through the process of the trick and then also moving the narrative along. Because I did feel... You know, This is a plot-heavy film, and one of the sort of hiccups I had is getting through all the machinations of the plot could be a bit of a slog at certain points, but here
1: it was a real skillful way to kind of just move us quickly through it. Yeah, I think that's a great point, and I had two quick hits, and one of them was definitely tied to the editing. There is a real economy to it that I appreciate, and I'll give one example, though there are many. The fact that we discover Borden on stage at some point has now rebranded himself as the professor and the movie doesn't devote any time to that. We don't get that aha moment. It's not like he's sitting in the workshop one day and he says, I need to create this persona. Right. And this is what I'm going to call myself. He just all of a sudden is that on stage. And we understand as viewers Based on the science aspect, at least the, the way he's kind of fooling the audience with the theatrics, it seems scientific, so he's going to call himself the professor. The movie doesn't otherwise get bogged down in it. There are a bunch of scenes like that and moments that Nolan gives you maybe about 12 seconds, and just in that 12 seconds or less, we really do get everything we need to know. To get us through the rest of the narrative
0: yeah it goes back to that are you watching closely idea which That's you know, it. should not only be a tagline for our overview but really it's it's kind of it is true of every nolan film you know because yeah. it's not just because they're tricky, but they they often kind of formally and they reward that sort of attention. I, I think of Bale at one point saying a real magician tries to invent something new. Mm-hmm. And that's maybe, for me, the key line in terms of this being about filmmaking. Because I think sure. what we've seen so far, even with something like Insomnia, which is in many respects a genre film, um, but there are elements to that where you can see him trying to invent something new certainly did mm-hmm. with batman begins it's it seems to be what he sets out to do with each of his movies
1: absolutely i mean really it is probably what any filmmaker what any artist should always endeavor to do the other part i wanted to mention is that touch of the blind assistance and the oh, way when that, that when that blue light crackles yeah. and you see it reflected in their eyes. I mentioned in the setup this going into gothic horror territory. And there is, of course, undeniably that Frankenstein aspect to it. And that's the moment where it becomes true horror. Yeah. Almost. Yeah. It's it, great. It really, it really does give you that sense that, oh, Angier has turned into something demonic. He's gone That's somewhere dark. Yeah, Yeah, definitely. somewhere so dark he is, he is crossed over into another realm when we see those blind assistants in their eyes. So that, that reminds me of a question I wanted to ask you, actually. Back to Angier. Do you think he's, he's essentially...
0: I mean, we do see that he's the real villain, right? The whole narrative kind of goes that way. But I wonder if you think it's not so much that he's monstrous, a murderer, in the ways we've discussed, but do you think it's because he's cheated, in, in the magic world, because he's he's essentially employed science, right? Rather than deception or illusion, or do you think what he's doing, it's still a form of deception, I guess. I don't know. It struck yes. me if that was like, maybe that's that's on top of his other sins, is the sin of cheating at magic in a way by using this, this box.
1: I don't yeah, know. It's interesting to think about. For me, I just can't help but tie it to that idea that borden expresses at the beginning which is the whole act is really just commitment it's all about committing your entire life to it so and he so wins the fact, then so he wins yeah. he wins that way like even though you're right he's the villain and and he's broken all sorts of as we said laws of humanity somehow he's the most professional he proves mm. himself to be the most professional he's, in the end he's gone the by furthest. having that commitment yeah yeah he yeah has. i guess that's true Previous Nolan Oove review entries are available at filmspotting.net. There's a link right at the top of the page or click on episodes. Next up in a couple of weeks, we will get to 2010's Inception. If you have seen The Prestige and agree or disagree with our thoughts, you can email us feedback at filmspotting.net. Or you can find us on Twitter. I'm at filmspotting. Josh is at Larson on film.
0: Somehow, even amidst theater closings across the country, Adam and I are going to pull reviews of two new releases out of our hats. Some golden brick spotting is up next, plus Massacre Theater. Stay with us.
1: There is a creature alive today who has survived millions of years of evolution without change, without passion, and without logic. It lives to kill. A mindless eating machine. Time to hit the beach, right, Josh? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, It brings back memories, doesn't it? No, thanks. Uh, A great white shark is the least of my worries about the beach right now, Adam. (laughs) Yeah. Good point. That's from the trailer for what else? Jaws, which celebrates its 45th anniversary this summer. And seriously, how did anyone ever swim again? I'm saying that just after watching the trailer, Never mind the whole film. I mean, I distinctly remember what my life was like after seeing Jaws and imagining even being in the deep end of my local swimming pool that somehow my feet couldn't dangle too far into the water.
0: Yeah. I mean, Little Silver Lake. In Michigan where I went every year, Adam, as a child, suddenly became shark infested, let alone just over the sand dunes was Lake Michigan. And you know, that was crawling with them. So yes, really <laughs> scarred
1: my childhood. Next week, we'll have a 45th anniversary Sacred Cow review of Jaws, a film that is in the film spotting pantheon and has been going back to the very early days of the show, which means other than making one top five where we cheated and allowed it in when we did our top five Spielberg scenes, Jaws really has never been talked about in detail on the show in the past 15 years. So it seemed like a great idea with it celebrating its 45th anniversary in June. We're also going to take this opportunity for a very special power ranking edition of the film spotting top five. We've only ever done this for the Chris's and now (laughs) we're doing it for Spielberg. Seems right.
0: Yeah. I love that the Chris's is how we christened this
1: segment. It's just perfect. Well played. We're going to power rank the five decades of Spielberg's. Filmography. So look forward to that next week. The current film spotting poll over at our website, filmspotting.net, was inspired by that Spielberg power ranking. We're asking this question You can only save one decade of Steven Spielberg's output. Which one do you go with? Josh, lay out the options again. All right, with a few
0: highlights from each decade. From the 70s, you've got Jaws, Close Encounters. The 80s gives you Raiders of the Lost Ark and E.T. Here are three major films from the 1990s, Jurassic Park, Schindler's List, and Saving Private Ryan. The 2000s, Spielberg had AI, Artificial Intelligence, Minority Report, and Catch Me If You Can.
1: And then, in the 2010s, War Horse and Lincoln. You can vote in that poll now at filmspotting.net. And as always, we love the comments. Josh, have you been doing any homework? Do you plan to do any homework? I'll say, I'm feeling fairly good about myself and my power ranking, because I went through his entire filmography, looked at my blind spots. I've already checked one off. I have one more I'm going to watch, even though most people say it's a film that probably isn't worth seeing from Spielberg. That's always, but that's one of the film from the 80s. And I'm going to check that off, and then that will give me this sense of comfort. Yeah, I will have seen every film of his from every decade except one. So if that's not clear, it means every film from the 70s, but one right. from the 80s, 90s, like each decade. There's yeah. one movie I haven't seen. I've seen all the rest. And I feel like the one I haven't seen, most people would excuse me for. So I have a good foundation for approaching this top five. I would be completely comfortable if I were in your position to to rank, to power rank his
0: decades. Um, always, though... I'm curious to hear what you think about it. I have fond memories, but again, that's one that I saw, I think, in 89. So essentially as a kid, I am going to do homework because this enables me to become a Spielberg completist. Ready Player One is the only one I have not seen, it turns out. I thought there might have been one or two that I missed in there, but um, yeah, never got around to that. So I don't know how much that will shift my power rankings. um, From what I understand, it won't, (laughs) uh, but I do want to see it. You know, I like to be a completist.
1: So yeah, that's my homework coming up. Yeah, that is the irony, too, of watching always. There's no way that whether that film is a masterpiece or an all-out debacle, it's going to change how I rank the 80s. Right. Yeah, I doubt so it. So it's pointless in a lot of no, ways, but no, you it should do it will make me feel good. You should It'll do it. It'll make me feel good. I'll be as close to a completist as I'm going to get for this list. Every two weeks over on our sister podcast, The Next Picture Show, you'll find a new movie pairing, a recent release, and a classic film. Tasha Robinson, Scott Tobias, Keith Phipps, and Genevieve Kosky, the great hosts of that show.
0: This week, it's part two of their I'm with the band pairing. So they'll be discussing the new How to Build a Girl that stars Beanie Feldstein. And previously, they talked about Cameron Crows and Adam's Beloved, Almost Famous. New episodes of The Next Picture Show post every Tuesday. You can
1: find them wherever you get your podcast. And there is more information at nextpictureshow.net. Want to give a shout out to Michael, Mark, Amanda, Philip, Paul, Jack, and Jacek, all new members. Of the Film Spotting family Woohoo! over on Patreon this past week. One way you can support our show is to join that Film Spotting family. As a patron, you get ad free episodes via a dedicated RSS feed, early downloads, a merch discount, and more, including. Our monthly bonus episodes, I referenced it while we were talking about The Prestige. Our May bonus episode just went up earlier this week, and it was a We Were Probably Wrong Once review of Wes Anderson's The Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou. I think we covered as much ground with that film as you possibly can. I think it was overall a rewarding discussion. That's my sense of it anyway, Josh. It turns out I do not feel like I was wrong once, but Sam definitely does. He had a real conversion on this film.
0: That was so good to see to see Sam join the League of zisu lovers. And yeah, I didn't actually revisit the film before that discussion, but what I did do after we talked, him, I mean, as you saw, I was just smiling the whole time yes. for almost a good hour straight. I, I went ahead and just put on a playlist of, you know, music from Anderson's films for my Saturday night. That's how I spent the night. Hmm. You spent it watching The Prestige. I yeah. just listened to Wes Anderson
1: soundtracks. It was great. So either you weren't listening to me and only choosing to listen to Sam or nothing I said could bring you down. It just could. not No, I was on a high. (laughs) Okay. Well, maybe to get back at you and Sam a little bit, I'll read this comment we got over on our Patreon page from our former PA, Andy Mitchell, who said, one ticket please for the Life Aquatic is just Okay. I mean, I like its humor and playful production design and special effects, but I feel Steve is too prickly. Like a few Baumbach films, I didn't go for Baumbach, the co-writer of The Life Aquatic, to really embrace the way Josh and Sam do. Thank you, Andy, for having my back. Andy,
0: we, we clearly stated... On that bonus episode, this is not allowed. You must either love or hate Life Aquatic. Exactly.
1: We also wanted to thank all of the listeners who heeded our bat signal. We put it out there on Twitter, on Facebook, and over on our Patreon page. We asked listeners to give us a positive review or rating over on Apple Podcasts. It's something we've done occasionally in the show's history, but not a regular routine for us at all and we knew and were very pleased to hear it that we were going to be featured i think it might be still there as of this recording josh over the weekend apple put up at the top of the podcast page a section a collection called movie fanatics and if you scroll down kind of funny. They put us under film history, Mm. but I'll take it. Just happy to be nominated to be on the page. Yeah, and to be featured prominently. We're right there, and I knew we might be getting some more eyeballs on us, so I thought, you know what? If we could get some fresh reviews, that would really help. Maybe we just spread the gospel a little bit and help convert a few more listeners and Man, did listeners come through. Got a lot of great stuff. We really appreciate all the kind words. Just taking the time to do it, giving us a five-star review and saying nice things about the show. Anything you can do to help us get new listeners is really appreciated. So thank you. And with that, Josh, it's time for Massacre Theater.
0: Indeed, the part of the show where we perform a scene and you get a chance at winning a film spotting t-shirt. A couple weeks back, Adam and I massacred this scene. Rebuilt the National Guard C-5A. Flew it 8,000 miles on two engines and tried to set it down on the old strip outside of Manchester. Lost 122 men and most of my fuel. We need shelter. A place to refit artillery. We'll be out of your hair by 1,800 hours tomorrow. That's a good story. Especially the bit about the plane, but there hasn't been anything in the air for 20 years. That's their territory.
1: That's my territory. That's your territory. They're just renting
0: it. Turn around, Van Zandt.
1: Don't be a fool. We can do this easy, or we can do it real easy. You try it.
0: That was Christian Bale and Matthew McConaughey in 2002's Reign of Fire, written by Matt Greenberg, Greg Shabbat, and Kevin Paterka? Peter Kosher, Okay.
1: Uh, three Guys took a whack at that one. It was directed by Rob Bowman. That Massacre, part of our Nolan Dark Knight extravaganza. So why that scene from Rain of Fire? Let's see what listeners came up with. Mike Bowders in Durham, North Carolina says, I have to assume it was chosen due to the casting of two Christopher Nolan veterans, Christian Bale and Matthew McConaughey. Renaming one of the characters Cooper is, of course, a nod to McConaughey's character in Interstellar. Thanks for keeping the podcast going. During this crazy time. Thank you, Mike, for that. Here's a note from Aaron
0: Neuwirth. This is a movie where Matthew McConaughey chomps on the butts of cigars while Christian Bale does what he can to hold some of it back in one of his first big budget summer movies. Even a young Gerard Butler doesn't have much to say compared to an all-in McConaughey who shaved his head in preparation for taking on giant dragons in post-apocalyptic London. Saying all of this out loud, it truly is a shame this movie isn't even a guilty pleasure. But just looking at the misleading poster again, which features multiple dragons seemingly taking on helicopters in massive firefights, none of this happens, is upsetting. How does this connect to the Dark Knight trilogy episode? Well, as mentioned, you have Bale starring in a summer movie. The film features something of a large scale, like Nolan's films, I suppose. You have flying, feared beasts taking on its enemies. Much like the plot of Raz al Ghul, the story focuses on attempting to burn civilization to the ground. That's all I got. Thanks for all the shows. I've continued to enjoy it,
1: as always. Aaron, well done. And not commented on by us, Josh, I too shaved my head to prepare for that role. <laughs> I don't know why I didn't get any extra points for that from you. Uh, You laugh, Adam, but it's about to come to that for me. I'm very near head-shaving status over here. Alfredo Gutierrez in Compton, California, wrote in, both Adam and Josh butchered these performances, doing no justice to McConaughey's (laughs) introduction into the film. Just kidding. I got a good laugh out of it. The scene in the film where they perform Star Wars for the children is awesome and reminds me of the many things we have to do while in quarantine to maintain our sanity. So I, of course, having not seen Reign of Fire, didn't know what Alfredo was talking about. In fact, thought maybe he was deliberately trying to mislead me, but I Googled it and you can watch a scene where they (laughs) reenact scenes from star wars for the kids and i think there is a nice tie there to some of the ways we're all keeping busy right now um and it, did that encourage you to go ahead and watch Reign of fire anytime soon adam has no any, it did has not none of this no it did not
0: <laughs> you're moving as i predicted further and further away all right here's rory dunn from vancouver Unfortunately, it wasn't Josh's Christian Bale, if he was from South Africa accent, nor Adam's Adam Sandler as Matthew McConaughey, but simply the changing of his name to Cooper. Connections, probably how watching Rain of Fire and The Dark Knight Rises both remind you of better films you could be watching, Star Wars and The Dark Knight respectively. Ouch, Adam, are Ooh, you going to take that? Burn, <laughs>
1: burn, Rory. Let's let's get to the the best feedback. The feedback that talks about How great my performance was, Josh. Jeff Milo, our friend in Ferndale, Michigan. To Adam's credit, all I needed to go on to venture this wild guess was his exceptional Matthew McConaughey impression. I mean, maybe exceptional (laughs) by massacre standards, but still, bravo. I I think that's exactly right. It was good by massacre theater
0: standards. Here's Ryan Cam. He's in New York City. Amazingly enough, I recognized Matthew McConaughey before I even knew the movie. Good job, Adam. There you go.
1: Thank you. Benjamin Lopez, he's in College Station, Texas. He says gigamaggies. I'm going to say Roll Tide. Adams McConaughey was genuinely pretty good, so kudos for that. However, Josh's Christian Bale sounded more like an 80s-era Arnold Schwarzenegger doing a really rough (laughs) mid-Atlantic accent. Was that what you were going for, Josh? Uh, Yes, exactly. Adams' reading of, and I, I just can't, I can't summon it again, his reading of, that's my territory, that's your territory, they're just renting it actually gave me chills yes that is what massacre theater is all about no one has ever did watched I know. rain of fire and gotten chills just so you know this is true until me until i performed it little did i know how big a role those two leads would have in my film upbringing as i came to love christian bale as well via batman begins and the prestige only a few years later thank you two for countless hours of pleasant company over the years and for your always reliable golden brick recommendations that make me proud to be a film nerd hey i take all criticism i cannot do michael Caine. We've
0: established now I cannot do Christian Bale. One more comment nope. here from Juan Rodriguez. Hey, Adam and Josh. Greetings from Orlando, Florida. I thought the critics had massacred rain of fire to a bloody pulp back when it opened. And then Josh comes along doing Christian Bale by way of Kevin Costner in Prince of Thieves and... And Adam, nice try, but it takes chemical aid to get to the relaxing tones of Matthew McConaughey, even when he's in growling mode. The obvious connection is that Bale is both star here and in Nolan's Batman trilogy, but also... Bale is playing a character trying to overcome a childhood trauma by fighting evil with varying
1: levels of success. I think the listeners did it. I think they nailed every connection that of course Sam was thinking about. Or was it you, Josh, when you picked this scene? I can't remember. Uh, No, this was, I I do like Reign of Fire. I am a fan, but this was a Sam choice. So Sam's poll questions are deeply flawed trademark, but his massacre theater choices are dead on. Perfect. So it is now time then Josh to reach into the film spotting hat. Pretty brimming. Pretty brimming, so I think it was my McConaughey. Reach in and pick out this week's winner. The winner is Mark Gagnon from Cornwall, New York. Congratulations, Mark. Email feedback at filmspotting.net, and we will set you up with your very own Film Spotting t-shirt. Broadsheet journalists have described my impressions as stunningly accurate. Well, they're wrong. I've not heard your Michael Caine, but I assume it would be something along the lines of, my name's Michael Caine. Well, we're going to see what happens here. I'm going to try to outdo my McConaughey last week. We'll see if I pull it off, Josh.
0: You're, you're feeling confident. For, for the record, this, <laughs> this was a request and I heard the phrase,
1: I've practiced. <laughs> yeah, briefly, briefly, but that is more preparation yes, than I usually do for these scenes that I than either of us do. I don't think we're going to tell you any connections to this week's show, because hopefully, if I do my job right, mm-hmm. that should be obvious. Of course, maybe a little hint, nostalgia for some listeners could be a factor, and maybe these lines will just ring so clearly in their ears, Josh. There's a line, there's a phrase that's a dead giveaway, even if you don't nail it,
0: but I, be- okay. I believe in you. I think you're going to.
1: Okay. Fortunately, you started off. I have more time to warm up. <laughs> okay. I'm going to give you the action. Just respond. React to me. Just respond to me. React to you. Okay. I'm just going to listen and react. There you go. And action.
0: I want my brother back, please. If it's all the same. What's said is said. But I didn't mean it.
1: Oh, you didn't? Please. Where is he? You know very well where he is. Please. Bring him back. Please. Sarah, go back to your room. Play with your toys and your costumes. Forget about the baby. I can't. I've brought you a gift. What is it? It's a crystal, nothing more. But if you turn it this way, look into it. It will show you your dreams. (laughs) Scene. Well, well, I broke you. What? I broke you. What?
0: Yes. I don't know if that's a good sign. Um, <laughs> the closer you got to singing, the, cl- yeah. the closer you were. The closer.
1: I, I th- know. I think you were still light years away. Well, that's fair. <laughs> that is very fair. But I think, I think we're going to get a lot of entries, Yeah, I hope so. If you know what film. We just massacred. Email the movie's title. It's so much fun to talk like that. Email the movie's title along with your name and location to feedback at filmspotting.net. Your deadline is Monday, June 10th. Yikes.
0: The winner will be selected randomly from all the correct entries and announced in a couple of weeks.
1: This is WOTW Radio in Cayuga, New Mexico, and this is the news for the hour. Now, what would you like to tell us about yourself? I don't know. Well, aren't you like some big science girl? Tell me about science. Everett, it's Faye. And the sound came through the board and interrupted your radio show. What a sound like. That's from the trailer for The Vast of Night. It's a movie from first-time feature director Andrew Patterson. Set in 1950s New Mexico, a switchboard operator and a radio DJ come across a strange audio frequency. The film has been playing the festival circuit since early last year. It played Slamdance and Toronto and also the Chicago Film Festival. This past year, it comes exclusively to Amazon Prime this weekend. And Josh, you've seen it and you're a fan. I am a fan, and I think it's a
0: golden brick candidate because of the formal inventiveness of this. It actually begins as uh, we see this kind of retro TV set, 1950s TV set that the camera moves in on, goes... Into the screen as we realize it's showing this TV show called Paradox Theater. So, obviously, like a Twilight Zone sort of thing. And the episode we're watching is entitled The Vast of Night. So, we go into the TV and suddenly we're essentially in the show. Um, and then, yeah, it proceeds with the story that you just set up um which is fairly straightforward familiar from 50s 60s sci-fi but it has two formal interesting formal elements these extended single take sequences where the camera follows those two characters sort of walk and talk Sequences um, that are really interesting and kind of showy as they walk through town. And then there are two instances in this movie where we get extended monologues from characters. One is when someone calls in to Everett's, he's the disc jockey, his radio station, and tells a story that's related to these this signal that's in town and obviously aliens come into play and and he talks about his experience and we just see Everett's face for like a minute or two as we hear this story. And then there's another instance where the two main characters visit an older woman in town a recluse who shares her story that's related to the signal they've been hearing and it just sits the camera sits again on her face and for one instance it even goes black. And so we're just listening to the audio We're listening to stories. And was what was kind of cool for me about that is that I don't know if you ever listened to like old-time radio drama, Adam, but this was a thing when I was a kid and we would take road trips as a family. My parents would buy tapes of like The Shadow and these really old-fashioned radio shows, and we'd listen to those. And it reminded me very much of the style of that sort of drama. So you've got Radio dramas at play here, you've got cinema obviously, and you've got this television element, and it's a really cool formal experiment. I don't know if it's entirely successful as you know a story or a narrative about these characters, um, you feel kind of distanced from them, I would say. Um, but yeah, as this kind of formal experiment and something with some
1: nostalgic elements. It was really enjoyable, and I'd recommend it. I look forward to seeing it. The Vest of Night, currently available on Amazon Prime. Next up, a documentary. One, I think, that may also bring some elements of formal inventiveness. The Painter and the Thief. Two paintings were stolen from a gallery in Norway today. The paintings were stolen in broad daylight. I don't know what to think. I have identified the thief. We have not found we had his name from the court papers You might know who I am I'm just a
0: curious person What made you do it? It was your masterpiece
1: It's done.
0: The Painter and the Thief is the second documentary feature from director Benjamin Ree. His new film documents the unusual relationship that develops between painter Barbara Kisselkova and Carl Bertel Nordland, who was arrested for stealing two of Kisselkova's most valuable paintings. Now, the unique twist here is that Kisilkova and Nordland become friendly. This happens after the artist asks the thief to pose for her. So, Adam, you're the one who came across this and watched it initially and suggested mm-hmm. it as a golden brick nominee. And I immediately understood why. Documentary, it's about art and it has kind of a, a formal inventiveness in how it goes about telling that story. So, clearly I saw the reasons why you were drawn to it. Um, mm-hmm. But did it did it follow through on those in, in, in a way that was rewarding?
1: Yeah, it definitely did. And I finished it without knowing anything else about Benjamin Ree, And I didn't know if this was in fact his second film or his first film. I knew that I wanted to at least throw it out as a golden brick possibility. And he qualified as someone who was an emerging filmmaker because he wasn't on our radar at all before. But I immediately went to IMDb after I finished the movie and I saw that he made another documentary one prior in 2016 called Magnus and I looked it up and it's a profile of a chess champion who I believe at this point is still the world chess champion. His name's Magnus Carlson from Norway and I did a search on my TV and it's on Amazon Prime for free and it's only 70 minutes. So right after I finished The Painter and the Thief, I put on Magnus and It's definitely a more conventional documentary, feels in a lot of ways like a first documentary, though still a really fascinating subject. And I do give re-credit for really nicely utilizing a lot of home movie footage to tell a story visually. There's a lot more talking heads in this one, and there are none in The Painter and the Thief. But he got lucky, too, with Magnus a little bit, Josh, because he gets to tell the story of his childhood and starting to play in early chess tournaments and his father shot so much footage of them on the road. So he gets to use what his father is saying in voiceover, but otherwise actually show us those moments and makes it visual as opposed to the way we would normally piece together the past with those talking head interviews, maybe some B-roll footage, some newspaper clippings and whatnot. So I did notice something in his eye and his desire to tell a story with images as much as possible. But all I was thinking about while watching it is how impenetrable Magnus is. And not by choice, by design. Who he is as this young chess champion, the way his brain works, he is just not someone who is going to open himself up to a camera or to anyone, really. You know, his, his family is comfortable around him and he's comfortable with them, but he's not even giving them that much. They mm. talk about how he can just go off into his own world and he's thinking about chess moves and he's not really engaging with them. And there's one line, Josh, you'll understand why I'm talking about Magnus here in relation to the painter and the thief. There's a moment about maybe halfway through Magnus where he's interviewing Magnus, I think in his apartment. And I don't have the exact line, but Magnus says something like, I have dark thoughts, just like anyone else, but I keep them to myself. And the camera just lingers for a second. And in that moment, I was imagining Benjamin Ree sitting there as the interviewer thinking, I really want to ask more. I really want to probe more. I need to understand this side of this person, not just the chess champion and all of his exploits. But is there any point? Am I really going to get anything more out of them? And that's all we get. We get the admission, but we don't get any evidence at all. And then I imagine Ree coming across this story of Barbara and Carl, <laughs> however he did it. And maybe it's why he sought it out in the first place. These characters are both open books and they are both open wounds. And we go to some dark places immediately with these characters and i mentioned that visual eye i really appreciated the opening of this film which uses the surveillance footage of carl and this other man who he didn't even know just another thief that he kind of encounters on the street and they go in and steal these paintings and they both take one and kind of go their separate ways but using images using the images of the paintings themselves and that footage to set up this act that is going to define these two people And their relationship to each other, in some ways their relationship to the world, it's how people know him as this criminal, it's how people know her as this painter who had her two most famous and most valuable paintings stolen, and it drives everything we see over the course of the documentary, and it just so elegantly allowed that to play out for us at the very beginning of the film.
0: Well, and he also adds, uh, I'm with you as a fan of the film, I definitely recommend it. And he also adds an interesting structure that allows us to get to know them so well and from different angles, right? It's essentially a two-part structure where he presents everything from Barbara's perspective initially, which makes sense. She's the victim, um, and and so we want to see things through her eyes. But then in the second half, we return to many of the same events through Bertel Nordland's perspective, and he provides the narration. So she's narrating the first half. He narrates the second, essentially. And there's a yes. key line that Bertel Nordland, the thief, says during his narration. He says, she forgets that I can see her too. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, that isn't to say that it becomes an adversarial thing entirely, but just to show you that this is a documentary that is interested in varying perspectives. So the result is we get a fuller picture of each person, right? We not only get how they want to present themselves to Reese as the director, but Mm -hmm. we get how the other subject sees them. And that's just
1: unique for a documentary and I think leads to some really rich rewards. That for me is the other really nice touch here, the split perspective. The way we do at first hear and see the world completely and see Carl from Barbara's point of view. And we do see him the way she is viewing him or the way we imagine that she would and you're wondering okay but what is he really thinking and what is his perception of her and this entire bizarre situation and whatever relationship they are embarking on and that is developing between them and i had just come to terms with it as a viewer josh that well re made a choice yeah and he maybe even didn't have a choice He's following Barbara's story. Mm-hmm. This is ultimately her story. And you know what? If that's how it all plays out, I'm going to be fine with that. I'll try to glean whatever I can about Carl and who he really is from Barbara and through her perspective. And then when it switches and we realize that The Painter and the Thief truly is a movie that's divided into those two acts and yeah. that we're now all of a sudden going to realize that that Ree had a camera with him during a lot of these moments, too. And it's capturing her the way he sees her. And we hear his version of certain conversations that they had and the way he perceived those. That is where the whole scope of this documentary really changed and I think really became a lot more fascinating. And there are, of course, a lot of elements. I kind of hinted at it with the darkness talk that go back to our conversation about the prestige. And there's more commentary in this idea of what is really driving a lot of the artist's psychology, and she gets into some active intellectual conversations that that aren't just intellectual conversations. They're very real conversations about the relationship with the man she lives with, yeah. her, her boyfriend, that is now being fractured a little bit because of this relationship with Carl. And I was even struck, Josh, thinking about both of these films today, that, you know, Angier is haunted by and wants vengeance for borden's act the the tying of the knot he thinks that it was his his intentional mistake i think if you could phrase it that way that ultimately killed his wife and you know how he's constantly saying he must know he has to know whether or not he tied that knot and and he keeps saying i don't know but angier is sure he does and barbara's very similar right where she keeps wanting to go back to the crime she keeps wanting to go back to the moment the painting was stolen the moments after the painting was stolen and where it went. And it's as if she's saying, he must know, he must know. And she just keeps probing and probing. And it does, it does ultimately take, take its toll on him. But I really like how you framed it, Josh, in terms of that shift in perspective, showing us that it's not just one-sided, that we are going to see how the other person in this relationship views her. And that ties in so nicely with what, is probably the most profound emotional moment in this film, which I think is fairly early on when she has painted that portrait of him. Mm-hmm. And at this point, we're still definitely trying to figure out what we think of Carl. Yeah. And what we oh, make for of sure. him. And it's and it's hard probably not to see him as as the thief that he is, and a person who's always been in trouble and he's a little bit scary and a little bit intimidating. And she unveils this painting and his reaction and the way Re captures it just steady on him letting him and the two of them have that moment together that's that's a moment where now he's seeing himself through her eyes right yeah. just like the documentary yeah. he's showing us he's seeing himself through her and the the idea that through that art he He sees himself represented in the world and and not just in the world but represented in such a grand artistic way, yeah, you see the impact it has on him and the way it it gives him value as an individual and that was that was for me the the real standout moment in this film,
0: yeah, for sure and it's it's as if especially the more we learn about his past you get the sense this is the first time he felt as if he's been seen by anyone just seen yes. you know you're right the mm-hmm. The artistic element heightens it to be represented that way but it's also that these sessions they've had together they grow close these becomes therapy sessions where they're mm-hmm. both unburdening things to each other and then to have her represent him that way is incredibly moving I don't know if it made you think at all um, of Agnes Varda and JR's documentary Faces Places but remember how they would do these large large-scale representations um, Mm -hmm. of, you know, just everyday people, but the billboard-sized portraits or photographs, I should say, reproductions. And then they would bring these people out and show them, and it would be incredibly overwhelming to them. Um, Yes, yes, because it was art and because of the scale, but also in some of these cases because these were just people going about their daily lives, trying to make ends meet, and suddenly someone came and said, I see you. This is what you Mm -hmm. look
1: like to me. And it's beautiful. Um, It's incredibly moving. Great connection there. The Painter and the Thief is available on Hulu, Video on Demand, and Virtual Cinemas, and obviously recommended by both of us. So we have two more entries along with The Vast of Night to add to our list of golden brick contenders. That list is available at filmspotting.net slash bricks. Josh,
0: that's our show. Indeed it is. If you want to continue talking to us, you can reach out to both of us on Facebook and Twitter. Adam is at FilmSpotting. I'm at Larson on Film. In the show archives over at FilmSpotting.net, you can find reviews, interviews, and top fives going back to 2005. You can also vote there in the current Spotting poll. We're asking you to choose your favorite decade of Steven Spielberg's filmography. To order film spotting t-shirts or other merch, visit filmspotting.net slash shop, and you can subscribe to our weekly newsletter
1: at filmspotting.net slash newsletter. You'll hear our power rankings of Steven Spielberg's best decades next week on the show, as well as a forty-fifth anniversary sacred cow film spotting pantheon discussion, no pressure here, Josh, of the summer hit that really changed everything for Steven Spielberg and for cinema. Jaws.
0: Probably one of the films I've seen the most times in my life. So yeah, eager to watch it again. I'll be ready. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe DeSoe and Sam Van Halgren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistant is Kat Sullivan. Thanks also to Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. Our music this week is from Spain's Melenas. It comes from the new album, Dias Reros. More information is at melenas.bandcamp.com. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar?
1: No. That was terrible. No. And I'm Adam Kempinar. That was terrible. I ruined it. I ruined it. Sam, edit that. And I'm Adam (laughs) Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. (laughs) No, you got to keep all that. i I had such i i I thought i captured the magic and then i just lost it no it's see i i flew i flew too close to the sun josh he's deceptive he thinks and i i haven't tried it so i can't say but he you think he'd be easy evidence is he's not no he's not (laughs) film spotting is listener supported